Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. Welcome to this episode of Murder and Mayhem. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. This is Valerie Koo here, and I just want to remind you that you can get your free ebook at murdercourse.com. It's called A Month of Murder and Mayhem. Spend 31 days with the world's best crime and thriller authors. It's a great way to tap into some of the key takeaways from this podcast series. And it's kind of like, you know, the analog version for the times where you don't necessarily want us in your earbuds. So a month of murder and mayhem, which you can download for free at murdercourse.com. Today, we're going to be talking to a man who needs no introduction. You will see him in bookstores everywhere. You'll see him in airport bookstores. You'll see him in popular bookstores. You'll see him in independent bookstores. He's so popular as a crime writer, and I'm talking about none other than John Connolly. He's an Irish crime writer most famous for his series of novels with private detective Charlie Parker. He's written so many books. Um, His novels include The Killing Kind and Every Dead Thing. Now, this interview first appeared in our other podcast called So You Want to Be a Writer, which is a top-rating podcast in iTunes and was recently named by the US website Book Riot as one of the 30 most outstanding podcasts for writers in the world. So thank you, Book Riot, for that. But Murder and Mayhem is where we curate all of the world's best crime and thriller authors to bring them all to you so you can delve into what really goes on in their mind and find out about their writing process and how they achieve their creative goals. Uh, Today, as I said, John Connolly, I hope you enjoy the chat. So thanks for joining us today, John. 
It's a pleasure. Thank you, Valerie. We're thrilled that you're able to talk to us today on our podcast. You can't walk past a bookshop or a, or a gift store or an airport where, you, there, where there isn't a whole pile of many different John Connolly books. So your name jumps out everywhere. Um, did you always know you were going to be a novelist? Uh, I I liked writing, which isn't the same thing at all. I think most people who write for a living have always written. Um, I get very distrustful of people who will say, who say, oh, you know, I might sit down and write a book sometimes. You think, you know, you really won't. Um, <laughs> if you haven't been doing it already, you're probably not going to do it. So um, I'd always written ever since I was a kid. And um, I became a journalist because journalism was a way to be paid to write. Mm. But I think um, that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for people who want to be novelists or fiction writers to kind of take a sidetrack into journalism uh, and then suddenly find that they're quite frustrated and try and get out at the other end again. Um, so, But journalism was a good grounding for me. It taught me the discipline of writing, I suppose, that idea that you don't wait for the muse to strike because the muse doesn't really exist. Mm. Um you sit down at your desk whether you feel in the humor to write or not. And, and in a newspaper, you have to write because there's a space in the newspaper. And if you don't fill it, somebody else will fill it and will fill your job as well. <laughs> so it takes some of that preciousness off the act of writing, I think. And so it was very useful in that way. But newspapers don't like you making stuff up. You know, who knew? <laughs> um, so if you want to be a fiction writer, possibly not the best place for you to spend the rest of your life. Um, so I moved out eventually. So what was that transition like? Because your first novel was in 1999, Every Dead Thing. How did you transition? Did you write it on the side, you know, while you were writing the news during the oh, day? Oh, absolutely. I think everybody who is producing the first novel is, is doing it while they're, they're fitting it in around life. You know, I knew people when I was in college who went off to explore their creative abilities and, and spend most of it on beaches. And I think if you are to, if you were to say to yourself, I'm going to take time off from work to write my great novel, you're probably going to take time off from work and watch children's television in your vest for six months. That actually most people write in the spaces between living <laughs> initially. And that's what I did. Um, it, it was probably a little bit harder as well as a little bit easier. Harder in the sense that... Um, if you're an accountant or if you're a bus driver or a train driver and you're writing your novel, then coming home from being an accountant, a bus driver, or a train driver, turning on a computer and starting to write is probably a pleasant break. Mm. If you've been writing all day, mm. to then come home and turn on your computer and begin writing again is, is actually a little bit difficult. But as I said earlier, it, I, some of the preciousness had been knocked out of me about it and I approached it with a, an air of practicality, I think. Mm. And at what point did you know that you could become full-time as a novelist then? Was there a milestone? It wasn't until the, the first check arrived in my bank account that I realized I could do it. I, I was fortunate in that I got an advance that was large enough to enable me to say, I'm, I'm going to give up work and I'm going to give this a shot. And so far, I haven't had to go back to a proper job, which is a, a big relief because most writers have a second job and that second job is being a writer. <laughs> For the most part, writers uh, work at other things during the day, and that subsidizes essentially their, their writing. And I, I would find it very difficult now, maybe because I'm so used to having it as a full-time job. Mm. I would find it very difficult to fit it into those other spaces, but that's in fact what most writers have to do. They have to find a little space in each day or at the end of each week that's theirs and colonize it, and, and you cut away all the stuff about family, and you cut away all your worries about work. And you take that time for yourself and you write. Um, and I, it is a craft. I always get very distrustful of writers who 
don't like the word craft being used in association with their work. And Martin Amos is one. Mm. For whatever other qualities Martin Amos has, a tolerance for craft is not one of them. John Banville would be another. They both seem to think that there is a distinction between art and craft and that craft is, is somehow suspect and art isn't. But I've always thought that art is derived from craft, that it is it, it comes out of that, you know, chugging away at the rock face every single day of writing a sentence that isn't great and going back to it and honing it. All of that is craft. And to demean it seems to me to be an unfortunate approach to, to what we do. And I also don't get think that you don't get to say what you do is art. I think that's for other people to say. And time decides it. Um, <laughs> writers are probably the last people who should be asked to define their own work. Mm. So you write crime. Where did that interest in crime come from? Well, I, I write. I, I, I'm suspect about the use of the term crime mm-hmm. now. I, mm-hmm. I suppose I've always felt that I write mysteries mm-hmm. and, because I think that offers more scope for what I do. I think crime is a is very limiting, and I think that people approach it with a certain set of preconceptions, which I've always been a bit concerned about. Uh, but it was the initial genre that I read. I think most writers read write what they read. And when I was growing up, I read American crime, American fiction. And as a kind of substrata of that, I read American crime fiction. And the other genre that I read a lot of was supernatural fiction, particularly um, older short story writers. I've always felt that short stories are possibly the, the form to which super, the supernatural is best suited. So when I came to write my own books, it seemed quite natural to me to write a kind of hybrid to use a little bit of the mystery genre and a little bit of the supernatural genre and try to create something slightly different. Um, you know, the subjects I was interested in pursuing, I guess, redemption, um, empathy, justice, all seem to me to be ideally suited to the mystery genre. That's, they, they, they almost come as, as, as baggage with that immediately. So you have that framework that you can use. And then the supernatural... Um, Crime fiction, mystery fiction is a very conservative genre, or, or crime fiction is very conservative, mystery is slightly mm. less so, but crime fiction is very conservative and it has a particular loathing for miscegenation. It hates mixing. If crime fiction was a white person, it would only marry other white people. It does not like messing about with other genres and it particularly hates the supernatural <laughs> because it views it as its own antithesis. So I think crime fiction is supposed to be rationalist. Mm. And it's an error to assume that supernatural fiction is irrational because it's not. It's anti-rationalist. So the two could actually coexist quite peacefully alongside each other. So that's where all of that comes from. It, 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 it was a genre that suited me that I had an affection for. And, and that's the primary thing when you begin writing. You need to find something that you love. Mm. You usually explore a form for which you have an affection and in which you have an interest. And you're the product of... All writers are the product of the writers that they've read. Very few people crop out of the womb as as completely original artists. They're not. Mm. They, they are a, a sum of all the people who've gone before them. And then you add your 0.1% of inspiration that happens to come from yourself in an effort to make it slightly different from what's gone before. So you mentioned that uh, the supernatural supernatural themes are ideal for short stories, and you've published a book of short stories. Tell us about that and how different the writing process is when you've got these much shorter self-contained stories as opposed to a much longer novel? Well, initially the short stories were, uh, I think I I realized after my fifth book uh, that I was going to be doing this for a while, but (laughs) nobody was going to come along and reclaim my furniture and tell me that a terrible mistake had been made. And when you realize that you're going to be doing something for a while, 
genre writers have two decisions to make. Mm-hmm. One is whether a whether they're going to keep writing the same book over and over again, or whether they're going to try and explore something different. And if they are going to try and explore something different, are they going to explore it within the genre, or are they going to step outside the genre? They're the two issues. Mm. And as I said, because I was writing a kind of hybrid anyway, it seemed natural to kind of take that element of the supernatural out and explore it by itself. With short stories, they're I, I actually took a year off just to write short stories. I'd been approached by the BBC in London if, asking me if I wanted to do anything for them. And I think they thought I wanted to write TV movies or something. And I've always loved radio and I've always loved the human voice. Mm-hmm. And I think people listen to radio and watch television. They don't necessarily listen to what's being said on the television. Mm-hmm. But radio requires a particular focus. And I love the idea of writing ghost stories for the radio. I love the idea of somebody driving home at night. Uh, or sitting alone in the kitchen, having a story being told to them. And I think ghost stories in particular are very suited to that kind of oral tradition, that that sense of somebody imparting knowledge to you in that way. Short stories don't have to have a a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. Short stories are essentially a glimpse of something. Mm. And they usually leave the reader to fill in the blanks at the end, which is lovely. And and that's not just the case in supernatural fiction. Um, my favorite short stories are probably Hunters in the Snow by Tobias Wolfe mm-hmm. and uh, The Girls in Their Summer Dresses by Erwin Shaw, both of which essentially end at a point when a novel would continue. A novel would, would explore the ramifications of what's occurred. A short story shows you the incident and then essentially leaves you to fill in the blanks. And you have that wonderful sense with the short story that you love that you occasionally revisit it in your mind. It hangs on in there because you have been left with this sense of, of a whole other play waiting to, to emerge after you've finished a short story and turned on to the next one. So I really like that about it. And for the supernatural, what bedevils long supernatural fiction is the fact that if you read a four or five hundred page novel, yeah. the author is kind of duty bound to give you an ending and an explanation. Yes. You know, they really do. If you don't get one, you tend to be a little bit dissatisfied. I, I read Dan Simmons' The Terror recently, and it's a beautifully written book about uh, Arctic exploration, but it doesn't have an ending. It just kind of stops. And it's a long old book. And, and as a reader, you feel slightly cheated. And yet I see the difficulty that Simmons had and the difficulty that that, that long fiction writers have in the supernatural, mm. which is that the explanation for what occurred is never going to be as interesting as the mystery that you're presented with at the beginning. Mm. It simply can't be. So in short fiction, you're under no obligation to provide that explanation. All you do is, is try, pull aside the curtain for a moment, allow people to glimpse this kind of underlying chaos, and then push it, pull it back closed again. Mm. I was very influenced by Amor James, who I think is, is where the... The, the, the English goat story reaches this kind of apogee. Um, and he has a short story called A Warning to the Curious, which I think is a lovely idea. That idea, if you go poking around, you get a sense of how tenuous our connection is with reality and rationalism, that underneath it is all of this immensely complicated, frightening stuff. Mm. And, and James is very good at that, at, at showing somebody who, who has a view of the world that is essentially placid, civilized, rationalist, being exposed to this underlying chaos and having their lives change forever afterwards. But James at no point really explains what it is that they've seen. You just get the sense of something yucky. Mm. Uh, And so I love doing that with the short stories. I I got a real kick out of it. And I got to experiment with narrative voices. And those short stories then fed into what I did later because 
now I tend to write every second novel as an experiment. It tends to be often outside the genre or it tends to be a different genre. Mm. And the foundations of that lay in, in taking that year off to explore other ways of telling stories and finding that I could do that. And then being fortunate enough to have a publisher who was very willing to to accept these genre experiments and publish them without ever asking me what I was doing <laughs> or without ever kind of having a huge expectation for how many they were going to sell, but was prepared to do it because it allowed me to develop as a writer. And in that sense, I've been very, very lucky. Mm. And with that hybrid of, you know, rationalism and the super supernatural, I mean, it's obvious where you would go to research things like crime. Where do you go to research things like the supernatural? Well, you see, I, I, my love of the supernatural is largely literary. I'm a skeptic, mm. a healthy skeptic about these things. Um, so I find that most of this stuff, these are creatures of the id. They're all in there in your head anyway. They're manifestations of fears and concerns. And supernatural fiction is a very, it's a bit like chicken. It's a very good carrier for other things that you can, you can import a whole lot of contemporary fears, a whole lot of contemporary concerns through supernatural fiction. It's always been there. If you look at vampire fiction, vampire fiction is essentially a carrier for explorations of sexuality. That's what it's always been. Mm. Uh, so Stephanie Meyer writing these peculiar Twilight books, which are, you know, on one level are about sexual abstinence. But, you know, vampire fiction has always been about sexual abstinence. You know, if you got bitten by the vampire, you turned into the vampire, so it was a good idea not to be bitten. Mm. Um, so she's not, and people sometimes accuse her of being, you know, importing a degree of Mormonism into, into vampire fiction. It was already there. Mm. Uh, so there are different ways of looking at sexuality. So you can either read a vampire story as a straightforward story about people being bitten by things that flap about his back, or you can see this kind of very interesting subtext to it. Uh, and so I suppose I approach supernatural fiction in that, the supernatural in my fiction in that way. But also, in terms of mystery fiction, I write slightly darker mystery fiction. And what the central characters in mystery fiction, darker mystery fiction, all have in common is that they're all people looking for redemption. Harry Bosch in Michael Connolly's books is looking for redemption. Dave Robichaud in James Lee Burke's books is looking for redemption. And redemption for me, coming from a Catholic background, brings with it a certain amount of spiritual baggage. Mm, mm. And so I, I like that element. I like introducing that. I like introducing an older element of mystery to the books that because mystery has its origins. The origins of that word are primarily supernatural. So it doesn't seem that strange to me. To, to bring this stuff into the genre. And also, I think, while, as I said, crime fiction, and I mean crime fiction in that very conservative way, is very uncomfortable with the mixing of rationalist and anti-rationalist viewpoints, mm. most people aren't. You know, if you read a crime case in the newspaper and you read about some guy who's, uh, some, say, a woman who's killed her children, mm. okay, which for most of us is, is infanticide by a woman. It's just a, seems to be a really terrible crime because it goes against all our instincts mm. and our sense of what it is to be a mother. So we will read that story. You will maybe follow the court case to its ending and you will get a series of, of explanations for how things occurred. This was the cycle of events and, and perhaps the person was under pressure or there was a disruption in the relationship. And we think, okay, that's a rationalist explanation for what has occurred but instinctively we think actually that that's not enough to explain that mm. you know there mm. is something ineffable there that we can't quite under, understand yeah, exactly. and that's where the anti-rationalist bit comes in and, and if you're writing in crime fiction about good and evil most of us again when it comes to evil have a rationalist viewpoint and an anti-rationalist viewpoint we say what you know what is it to be evil what is it to do an evil act most of us are not evil most of us don't do evil things we do selfish things mm. 
but we don't, we're not actually evil. So immediately we have a kind of contrast between what is standard bad doing, if you want to use that phrase, which usually derives from human selfishness, mm. and something that's larger and, and more complex, which is, you know, the wellspring from which evil draws. And some of us will, will, will take it as subjective, some of us will take it as objective, some of us will think that there is something beyond the human, which is a source for this evil, and some of us will think, well, all evil is essentially human, but mm. somewhere inside of us we have the capacity to do these things. So crime fiction is very interested in that gray area, or, or the kind of crime mystery fiction that I like is very interested in that gray area. And for me, then, the supernatural allows me to explore those themes because um, another thing that mystery fiction is interested in is the distinction between law and justice it recognizes that they are not the same thing. And anyone who's ever been involved with the law will recognize that law and justice are not the same things. And the writer William Gaddis once said that in the next world we get justice, in this world we have the law. So all of these kind of issues, for me, lend themselves to a particular interpretation of mystery fiction, with which some of my peers don't necessarily agree. And your latest book... Um, the Whisperers is the ninth novel featuring Charlie Parker. Yeah. Tell us about your latest book and tell us initially how Charlie Parker came about and how you formed him. Well, the first piece of fiction that I wrote after a long period of writing nonfiction for the newspaper was the prologue to Every Dead Thing, which was about a man coming home and finding that everything he loved had been taken from him. Mm. And it became a kind of exploration of grief and how somebody could be almost broken by grief, almost, but not quite, and would set about rebuilding his life. And since then, they've become interested in, they're still interested in that subject, but they're also interested in mythologies, um, those stories and myths that we tell about our lives, whether they're personal or social or political. And so the whispers, I guess, feeds into that to some degree, because I became very interested in the aftermath of the war in Iraq, and particularly the effect that war has on a society and on individuals who fight in it. It has no real interest in whether or not the war in Iraq is good or bad or justified or not justified. What it is interested is is the myths that accrue around war and also the the effect that it has on soldiers returning home and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Um, because I had somebody who came to my signings who had served in Vietnam and suffered from it and used to talk to me a lot about it. So... Mm. Writers are, are magpieish by nature. Mm -hmm. We're always looking for shiny things, the little shiny thing that you can steal mm -hmm. that will make a story. And so I had two things going on. I had somebody's very personal narrative of what they'd gone through. And at the same time, there was a very public discussion of this conflict that was ongoing. And I saw a way to blend the two to explore something that was of interest to me. And so that's kind of where the whispers came from. And so what are you working on now? Is it another Charlie Parker novel or something else? No, I, again, every I've kind of reached that stage where every second book has to be something different, in part because I, I want to keep the Parker novels fresh, and one way of doing that is not to do one every year, mm. and also because I want to exercise different muscles. I, I'm As a writer, I'm curious about writing, and I'm curious about ways of storytelling. So I had written a book for children a little while ago called The Gates, which is the first time I'd ever written a book that was explicitly for children. Mm. And I had such a good time writing that that I thought, I want to write another one of those. So those books tend not to be written to contract. I tend to say to my publishers, look, I'm going off for a little while. I'm going to do something. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, it'll hurt a bit, but we're not going to have a huge falling out over it. And, and so they've been good like that. So uh, I, I've nearly finished a sequel to The Gates. I think I'll then go back to Charlie Parker. And then I have an idea for a novel about food that I want to write. So 
with writers, it's never a matter of not having ideas. Mm. You know, there are always going to be more ideas than you can use. It's deciding upon one and sticking with it. Because I think in terms of people who want to be writers and who want to write, I think they make two mistakes. One is that they think writers find writing easy and they don't. Mm -hmm. I think if you're lucky, 5,000 words out of every 150,000 come easy and the rest you sweat out. Mm -hmm. And you usually would rather do anything but sit at your desk and write them. (laughs) So in that way, it's a bit like going to the gym. It's better to have written than actually to write sometimes. (laughs) Uh, And also that there is this tyranny of ideas that I, I think if I were to ask all these writers who've tried to write a novel and, and abandoned it where they've abandoned it, between 20 and 40,000 words, I reckon in 95% of the cases would be the point. Mm. Because that's the moment, A, at which you hit the wall, the equivalent of the wall in marathon running, which in a marathon comes much later, but in writing a book comes very, very early on. Mm. And also because you start doubting the worth of the idea that you're working on. Mm. You start thinking this was a mistake and actually I have a much better idea for a book. So I'll put this away as a false start and I'll go back to the next one again. And there are no bad ideas. Mm. There's just a flaw in the execution of the idea that you're working on. And as soon as you begin skipping and saying, well, I'll leave that one and I'll go off and start something else, you end up with a drawer full of half-finished short stories, (laughs) half-written poems and half-written novels. You have to, every book that I've written, I've had that doubt that mm. sets in at 20,000 words and I've wanted to throw it away for every single book. Really? And it never, it never changes. It never goes away. And how do you get over that doubt? You, you have to accept that progress is going to be slower and you have to discipline yourself not to move on. That's it. There's no trick to it. You just have to say to yourself, there is no bad idea. Mm. That the only bad idea would be leaving this idea and going on to another one. That would be a bad idea that you have to maintain your focus on the book in hand and mm. you have to find the thing about it that appealed to you from the beginning and hold on to it and recognize that there is going to be a, a dissipation of energy, that there is going to be a dissipation of enthusiasm, that it's actually going to be a hard slog. But hey, you know, if writing was easy, everybody would do it. Salman Rushdie says writers are people who finish books. Uh-huh. Are your doubts greater when you do your experimental stuff? No, actually, they're usually greater when I'm doing the Parker novels. Really? Because I, I think I live in fear of, of repetition and I live in fear of, 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 of letting the series down, I suppose. That, I, you know, inevitably, if you're writing a series, genre fiction is generic. That's what it is. It, it tends to be the same but slightly different every time. Mm. And so actually, it, in a way, literary writers are both fortunate and unfortunate. Uh, they're unfortunate in the sense that they don't have that framework that genre writers can fall back on, especially genre writers who write a series. You know, you've got a character, you've got sidekicks. There's a certain amount of stuff already done when you sit down to write a novel. Mm. The trick is finding something fresh and new to say about it. Uh, Literary writers are fortunate in that there is always going to be something fresh with each book. I mean, in terms of the subject matter, there won't be because literary writers like genre writers only have a certain number of subjects that they write about. All writers do. Mm. There are just one or two things that you're concerned by and interested in, and they will always be at the core of your books. But it is sometimes easier to approach a new subject with a degree of enthusiasm than it is to go back to a series and think, I'm with these people again. How do I find a way to make the familiar new? Mm, mm. Uh, and so that is the challenge so sometimes it's actually wonderful to do something like the gates which you know is about a small boy facing the hordes of hell you can let your imagination run riot in a way that you simply can't within the framework of a series in crime fiction or mystery fiction so there are plus points and bad points to each Um, and flicking between them allows you 
kind of to get the best of both worlds and to come to each with a sense of enthusiasm and freshness. So do you have a, when you are writing, do you have a daily writing routine? Do you have any things that you need to do before you start writing? No, I, I, you know, not really. A couple of days a week I go to the gym first thing in the morning and then get a cup of coffee and go back to write. But usually I'm at my desk in the morning and I will write until lunchtime. I set myself a target each day. It's usually a fairly easily attainable target because I don't want to put myself off the idea of sitting down at my desk. So when I'm writing a draft, a thousand words, if I do more, fantastic. If I have to eke out those thousand words, once I get to a thousand and I'm having one of those days, I'll stop. Right. But, and if I'm editing, which I love, it will be a chapter, sometimes two chapters a day. And that speeds up as I get towards the end of a book. Similarly, when I'm reaching the end of a novel and I'm writing, I'll always be writing more than a thousand words a day because I'm on the home stretch. Mm. But there will be a middle section, that section after 20,000 words, where if I get a thousand words a day done, I'll be happy uh, because at least the book is moving forward. I think the worst thing is to set yourself unattainable targets that make you think I'm going to be sitting at my desk for the next nine hours trying to do this. Yeah. And, Nobody wants to do that. Now, you said just said that you love editing. Now, I have to say, I actually speak to very few writers who say that they love that part of the process. Why do you? Because I think it was Hemingway who said, uh, great, there, there are no great writers, just great rewriters. Mm. That for me, the, the first draft is just a sketch. It, it will be long, but there will be characters that are barely defined. I, to be fair, every writer is different. You know, there are some writers who will produce a cracking first draft. And they'll edit as they go. So I know George Pelicanos writes, uh, you know, half a chapter in the morning, edits it in the afternoon, then doesn't go back over it. That's the way he works. Mm. I rewrite my novels 12 or 13 times from start to finish. That's the way that I work. Mm. There is a kind of process of layering that goes on in the writing. And I get very attuned to the rhythms of it. And, and I'm concerned with the quality of the writing. I, there was always an impression that mystery fiction, you know, it, it didn't have to be terribly well written. People read it for the plot and the characters, and the writing didn't really matter so much. And I've never felt that. I, I felt it was worthy of the same care and attention as literary fiction. Mm. So in that sense, I love that process of editing because I, I get to re refine what I do. Mm. And I get to tease out things about characters. And, and I live with them for so long that, that I, I, they get a depth that they wouldn't otherwise have. If I were to hand over a second draft of my book, it would be terrible. It would be almost unreadable. Um, I love that, that idea of honing it. And, and in that sense, books are never finished, or my books are never finished. It just at some point, I have to hand them over. <laughs> but I could keep rewriting them over and over again. And I mean, there will be a, a process of diminishing returns because mm. in the end, I will be making changes that only ants would spot. But there is a pleasure in feeling that actually, yes, that draft has improved the book. And I know that if I do it again, the book will be improved a little bit more. You know, books, you can't rewrite enough. Mm. Books will always be improved by rewriting. You're very prolific, um, and yet, you know, you, you say you sit down, you have a, t a target, but you've written quite a number of books. Yeah. It, it, you seem very energetic as well. Do you um, take time out? <laughs> Not really. Um, <laughs> there is less and less time now. Uh, you know, this year was supposed to be a slightly easier year, but I, I'm got, I've published one book already I'll deliver another one a little bit later this year I have a lot of touring to do because as you build up this store of books you have more and more obligations to the publishers who publish them and I can't write on the road I, I'm not very good at it I like being in my office and having that space but it means that when I am there I have to be hugely disciplined so no there isn't and I think most writers who kind of have reached I guess the stage that I'm at where you've written 13 books now and 
and there's a certain expectation of what you're going to produce, probably don't take very much time off because there isn't really that choice anymore. Um, you're you're bound to your books, and for that reason, you'd better like what you do. <laughs> and you'd better and you'd better have a, a sense of discipline about it. Um, so I I don't, and I, I figure I'm going to write myself into the grave. But nevertheless, it was. Had someone asked me when I was younger to go back to your first question, what what, what would I have wanted to do when I grew up? I, I would probably have wanted to be a writer. Mm. So I'm fortunate in that way. I'm do, the, someone once said the secret of happiness is to find something that you would do as a hobby and then convince somebody to pay you to do it. And I've done that. So I, I don't really begrudge the time that I spend writing and touring. It's, it's a lovely way to earn a living. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed listening to that chat with John. He's such an accomplished writer. There's so much that we can learn from him. I love the fact that he talks about the grey area and that there's so many shades of grey. And whether you're talking about, you know, crime fiction and the supernatural or good versus evil, I really think that one of the things that makes characters so interesting is that grey area. Sometimes are they the hero? Are they really the villain? Are they really doing something bad? Are they doing something evil? Are they just making a mistake? And that's where we can really get to know our characters and explore their decisions and the actions that they choose to take. And that's where it can become really interesting and fascinating for a reader because it makes you read a question you know, what kind of shade of grey is that? Maybe not exactly that question, but it certainly makes your reader wonder what they would do in that situation. So I encourage you too to explore the shades of grey in your stories and your characters. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing. Students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.